Dr. Bucholtz, uh, welcome to today's podcast. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. Um, uh, thanks for doing this with me. Um, I kind of tracked you down uh, because I was looking for an Axis Deer scientist, and a lot of your research kept popping up on Google searches. And so we finally got in touch with each other. And um, I'm really excited to talk to you about a few different things, but mainly Axis Deer. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your, your background? Yeah, so I, I grew up in Wisconsin. Then I did, uh, I moved to Kentucky after I did my undergrad at uh, University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. When I went to Kentucky, I studied um, the community ecology of small mammals and ticks. And then after that, I, I moved down to Texas to do my PhD at uh, Texas Tech University to do um, studying axis deer, kind of in, in general, down in the, the Texas Hill Country, and I'm sure we'll get into a b- bunch of that. But yeah, we didn't, we didn't know too much about uh, axis down there, so it was kind of what, whatever we could study we were, we were open to. But yeah, you, you tracked me down. You're actually <laughs> kind of lucky. You, uh, the person you got a hold, hold of at Texas Tech, <laughs> Texas Tech uh, about three days before my Texas Tech uni- email was supposed to stop working, they emailed me, and I just <laughs> caught it. Oh, awesome. Caught it in time, so it was just just in time to yeah. catch it. Yeah, so I was lucky. Yeah. So. No, that's great. Um, so, um, again, the, the, the big reason why I want to talk with you is really about uh, Axis Deer. So why did you start your, your research with Axis Deer? So and it, it was again kind of that situation where, you know, for for PhDs grad grad positions in general, mostly you're looking for stuff that's posted um, online that's funded that's funded. But then you know I I got that position, um, but overall it it really interested me because it it kind of combined the the two main focuses that I that I study of population ecology and disease ecology. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we added other stuff into the into the project, but it you know it it started off as just being the the position that was that was posted, but then it came into a lot of very interesting things of you know what kind of pop how does their population grow Do, are they at risk of any diseases potentially transmitting to to whitetail and then you know I really got into over the six years I was there of of invasive species mm-hmm. um, management so so really, you know, like I said, it, it just kind of started off as that's who said yes. Gotcha. But, but then there was a bunch of stuff that was that was really interesting awesome. to me in the project. Right. Did you have any um, any thoughts about access here before you saw the posting? No. In fact, all, all I can remember of of knowing about access here before I, I even saw the posting and applied to the position and then got it was years ago. I was probably. Oh, I don't know, maybe like 10. Um, my aunt and uncle live in Dallas, and we went down to visit them, and then we went down to San Antonio. And oddly enough, we were looking through old photographs, and there's a picture of me standing in front of the Axis Deer mm. enclosure at San Antonio Zoo. Oh, that's so cool. That's, that's the only instance I remember know anything about Axis Deer uh-huh. before, I, before I started the position. Awesome. So it's just this random picture from... You know, 20 years ago, that just happened, that we happened to find. Yeah, that's so. neat. Um, you're a hunter, correct? Yep. Yeah, and so uh, in Wisconsin, Kentucky, Texas, did you hunt 
throughout the, yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, my advisor in Kentucky owned a prop, owned a, like 160 acres, so I, I hunted by him, and then I had some other places in Texas of people that I knew that I that I hunted hunted with, so, uh-huh. yeah, I, and it's just a kind of, you know, where where we had opportunity. Texas is a, Texas for hunting is kind of a restricted state because 98 approximately percent of the the state is privately owned mm-hmm. so it's it can be t- kind of tough to find places to hunt but i had friends and stuff who, who had places so i yeah. was able to to so, find places so that's an interesting topic there for texas so most who who want to hunt in texas uh, would have to do so with either an outfitter or get permission of a landowner yeah yeah and it's it's a very you know Obviously, the size of the state, when you say 98%, that last 2% is a significant portion. Sure. But uh, and you, when you look at it, that last 2% comprises a lot of, like, um, Big Bend State Park, Big Bend National Park, mm-hmm. parks. So, you know, these very large parcels of land way down by the border. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, you know, for, for kind of an everyday person to hunt, Texas is kind of almost a pay-to-play situation mm-hmm. where where you are having to get leases um on places or you um may know someone someone who does that property and that's how how i was able to hunt but yeah it it's it is you know it it's an interesting situation to set up over you know to be able to get hunting access in mm-hmm. texas gotcha gotcha do you know why that is because it's one of the few states that's like that right it, it's just that you know, historic. You you go back through Texas history. A lot of it is you know is the state. The state is privately owned. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, and and a lot of people wanted to go there to hunt. Hunt. So it's just it it created a situation that built into that. I see. Um, but yeah, it's it's more just the fact that yeah, there isn't a lot of public land. Yeah. In, in Texas. I wonder if oil has anything to do with some, that. Some of it. Yeah. I mean, there, there are huge parcels that are, that are owned by the oil companies. Yeah. Um, in fact, it, you know, it, it gets kind of interesting when you live down there, there's some of these guys are what, what we kind of called triple dipping where they're getting oil from beneath the ground, cattle on ground level, and then windmills up in the air. So they were making, money off like all three levels wow um so, so and probably were, outfitting too maybe. yeah and potentially outfitting too so i mean they there's a you know they they've got some resources there but yeah it's there's some large parcels that are that are owned by the oil companies awesome so um let me ask you this your background in hunting started probably in wisconsin then. yeah okay and that's whitetail hunting yeah. mostly yeah oh, pretty much only I mean, we had some bear hunting but that's that's it. Okay. I, and other than bird hunting too. Gotcha. So, so primarily whitetail. Yep. So I guess my first question then is contrast between the two species. Yeah. I, and so axis are very much a herding species. So when you get these large, large groups, um, together, it, the, the first thing you notice about them hunting is when you've got groups of 50 plus, animals it's a lot of eyes yeah you know it's a lot of eyes to look to find you it's a lot of ears to hear you so you know it's it's a different situation than where whitetail you're more got the the one deer kind of walking past you Mm -hmm. um so it you know when you're when you're looking at them 
for hunting purposes, I mean, the largest herd that I ever saw in Texas was 300 plus click. Um, it, but I've heard stories of places where a single field has 700 axes in it. Mm. Um, as a herd. As a herd. Wow. So, you know, when you, when you compare that to, to whitetail who, you know, even when they, when they are out feeding together, they're not exactly, they're not a herding species. They're not together all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they just happen to be in, be in that same field. So, you know, that, that's the really big, big difference. There mm-hmm. is you're, you're hunting a species that you got to compete with, you know, so many different eyes and so many different ears to, to see and hear you that, yeah, it, it can be more difficult. And, and frankly, axes are just smarter and warier, in my opinion. Really? Yeah, they, they, they notice, you know, any kind of threat. I think a lot faster mm-hmm. than, than white tail do. Um, and you know, I, I would have it where I'd be lucky to get within 75 yards, mm. um, down there. I and mean, it's just, they, between, you know, all, all the different individuals paying attention and, you know, one of them puts off an alarm bark and the herd spooks, mm. um, Verse and and whitetail really you've just got that one one individual you've got to outsmart. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it that's like kind of the primary difference in my opinion is just you know you 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 might compare it to to elk. I mean elk are are more of a herding species. They don't they don't necessarily have as big a big herd those herds like the three hundred. I said you know I saw it saw it on there. But it, again, it's more eyes, more ears, mm-hmm. um, to kind of notice you, you as you're hunting. So you, you know, you might have to take some further shots and, and mm-hmm. stuff. So mm-hmm. um, I read in your research that you said that axis deer outcompete uh, whitetails, or it seems like that, given given your research. Now, is that because of what you just said? You you f- you feel like they're a more weary, smarter animal, or because strength in numbers because uh, of the herd? Uh, uh, some both, some of both, and then there, there's other parts of, you know, first of all, with with the herding, if axes are a more aggressive species too, you know, I've, I've seen them get on their hind legs and I've seen them kick, literally kick whitetail, wow, um, on their hind legs, so you know they're they're more aggressive, but then when you think about it, if a big group of of fifty plus axes come comes in, and you're the lone whitetail. And and axis are more aggressive. Mm. You're gonna you're the whitetail. You're you're leaving. I see. Um, so there there's some of that, and we we had worked in some some other stuff of what what's the displacement potentially of of whitetail by axis? Mm. Are they dis, are are axis displacing whitetail out of the better habitat? Um, and that's you know one potential potential part of the competition. Um, but then there's also things like axis can can pretty much eat anything mm. they're we you know that we kind of compared them to goats um they they can they can pretty much eat across the entire spectrum of vegetation mm. whereas axis and whereas whitetail are a little bit more limited in, in what their diet is it's more you know browse during winter and then then um forbs or flowering plants weeds kind of the same um thing in 
in summer. Mm. So where whereas axis can can kind of eat all of that plus grasses plus um, fruits nuts whatever. Mm-hmm. So because they're able to able to eat everything, you know, if you've got a bad production year and for vegetation due to drought primarily, um, then then a lot of the food that's available for whitetail may be used up. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas as axis then have that that diet breath that covers more things than than whitetail does, so they just switch to eating the other stuff. I see. Um, and that's where then basically they they can now compete, you know, from from just having be able to eat other stuff and you know, the the food for the whitetails dried up. And they're running, you know, they're running on bare minimum. Some of them may die from starvation, mm-hmm. whereas axes just have all the other food that they can they can eat. So, gotcha. so there's some stuff there, but but you know, in in the research, we were primarily pointing out that with with axis numbers keeping di- keeping increasing. Um, so there was a there was a paper um, published about I think it was in 2010. That uh, suggested that as axis numbers increased, whitetail numbers would decrease um, for for a number of different reasons. One of it is displacement. One of it, you know, there there's diet in there. But what what they kind of termed it as was this vortex effect, where you know whitetail will just keep going down the vortex and and going decreasing numbers. Um, so. You know, the, the access numbers are increasing down there. Part of the research is we we found that um, in in our study area, just kind of the core of where access occur in Texas, that the the numbers of access and the numbers of whitetail are roughly equal. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you think about an invasive species or an exotic species compared to a native that's been here, you know, been in Texas forever for for whitetail. Whereas axis were introduced in 1932 into Texas, mm. so in 90 years, axis numbers are roughly equal to the native species that's been there forever. That's crazy. Yeah. So yeah. and there, you know, and and as those axis numbers just keep keep increasing, you can you may expect the whitetail numbers to start going down. I see. And wow. So so. Um, a lot of different factors of why they're they're yeah. flourishing one on one though um you know as far as antler size like let's say two bucks competing are they um are they a physically dominant animal as well yeah i so i i, I never saw an axis buck get aggressive with their antlers um but but i did see um axis does like i said get up get up on hind legs and kick yeah. Um, but but axis are, are physically larger. I see. Um, you know, a, a a really nice axis buck down there is pushing two hundred and fifty pounds. That's uh, huge. a nice white tail down there is pushing is 150, 160. Gotcha. So and they're just being physically larger, they when they do get aggressive, mm-hmm. they're gonna outcompete. Um one on one. Um so, so we kind of we kind of laughed. I mean, when when you get to the the hierarchy at feeders down there, it's well turkeys don't care at all. They just show up whenever. But but white tail are on the bottom. Then come come axis, and then come pigs. 
no one messes with the pigs. Really? Um, yeah, you just don't mess with the pigs. I see. Um, but but yeah, it, the most of what we saw is more just maybe they had experienced aggressiveness at one point, mm-hmm. but really it was when the axis showed up, the whitetail left. Mm. Um, okay. So maybe those maybe those whitetail had experienced some kind of kind of a you know physical aggression at some point and they they learned mm-hmm. um but you know i did i may not have seen it that right just then right gotcha but, um from working with axis you know a lot of uh there's quite a few hunters that listen to podcasts from a hunter's point of view you know axis deer i mean i'm sure there's a lot of people who've hunted axis before could you offer as a hunter you know hunting both now probably hunting yeah. a lot of whitetail and then uh access as of recent could you offer a hunter anything even an experienced one whether it's their novice or, or experienced any pearls of wisdom on hunting access yeah and the the first thing is is make sure you're covered i mean you you've got to you know don't let the all those eyes and ears see you mm-hmm. uh, and there you know and then one one method i've i've actually seen work down there especially if you're going for the trophy mm-hmm. is is you almost let them notice you and the big buck he kind of stands there for an extra second um and and kind of stares you down mm. um almost like he's he's you know trying to challenge challenge so, you know, there, there is just kind of this one technique of if you can spook them without really spooking them. Just having them notice yeah, you. Yeah, just having them notice you, you may get that big trophy buck to just pay attention just a little bit longer than the rest of them mm. and give you a shot. Gotcha. Um, but, but really... You've seen that frequently? Yeah, I did. Yeah, uh-huh. I saw that where, you know, we'd, we'd spook the, you'd spook the herd by getting a little bit too close to them. Mm-hmm. And then all the does, the smaller bucks would run off and the big buck would just stare, you know, flare up and stare at you. I see. Um, Probably yeah. especially during the rut, right? Yeah. 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 So and it's, you know, it, it may give you that extra five seconds or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but but overall, you know, you've either got to be covered, um, you know, in some kind of hide or you may be taking a long shot. Yeah. Um, you know, just because of of preventing them from from noticing you because like i said one one doe gives an alarm bark and they're gone yeah so it just takes one to to kind of you know spook on you and they bail yeah so i've noticed in herds too that there's a would you call it a sentinel uh animal yeah yeah i mean i i have noticed that too where there may there may be just one who who is kind of looking out um Mm -hmm. And it, it's it's an interesting point because so so compare it from from Texas and Hawaii mm-hmm. for for predators you know you do have that you you may have that sentinel animal who's who's watching you can you explain that what a sentinel is? so it would be kind of just one individual who instead while the rest of the herd is is eating one individual is kind of looking out for danger mm-hmm. they call um, that the sentinel yeah, animal yeah uh-huh. so. So you know it it's it's potentially interesting because in, in India, where they're from, that predator is primarily a, 
Bengal Tigers. Mm-hmm. Now, put them in both Hawaii and Texas. What? Uh, there's no Tigers. What, mm-hmm. what are they actively looking for mm-hmm. as, as kind of the sentinel to pay attention? I mean, in, in, in Texas, I, I saw heard spook on bobcats and coyotes, mm-hmm. which realistically, those two could not take down a adult full-grown axis. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're just focused. Those are focusing on fawns. Mm-hmm. Now, where axes occur in Texas, there there are some mountain lions who pretend who, but but not in any significant density mm-hmm. that that could harm harm axis. And then go to, to Hawaii. There there's really no pre- large predators there who would would threaten axis. So mm-hmm. in in terms of of having that one individual that one axis who's being the sentinel, paying attention for any kind of threat. There, it's it's down to humans, right. it, really. That's the only major threat that that they'd be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. So when you when you think of, you know, areas where they do come from in India, just because of of habitat fragmentation and stuff, they they are relatively confined to, you know, nas- national parks, other you know protected areas where there aren't a lot of human humans in those areas. But they come here, and their 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 attention now is solely focused on humans. I see. Um, I I kind of said down there the only two things that kill axis in any significant proportion are bumper and bullet. <laughs> you know, between getting hit by a car or someone shooting them. Yeah, that's about the only things that that kill them in any significant numbers. I see. The um. Is that built in? I mean, this is just me being stupid and not knowing. The fact that they have a sentinel animal and that they are so weary, is that built in that to their DNA because of the tigers in India? It could be. Yeah, you know that that they are kind of you know it it is some some remnant of of instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that they are paying attention because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that could be that could be very you know potentially likely that they're just left over from instinct that, Hey, we, we do have to pay attention. Gotcha. And then the, that whole sentinel, um, the use of that word and, and I guess like a guardian uh, type of animal that kind of guards, uh, the herd, you'll see that also in elk too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some that, yeah, that they have the, the kind of the one individual that, that pays attention. So you'd only see that, or you'd see that mostly in herds of... Yeah. Yeah. So you wouldn't see it in whitetail or muleys no. or... No. And in fact, what for one thing for whitetail that you often see them is is whitetail and turkeys um, tend to, to group together um, hmm. because uh, turkey eyesight is really good mm-hmm. and whitetail hearing is really good. So they kind of group, they, you know, for some reason they, they tend to group together mm. that, you know, they cover those two areas and if one spooks, the other spooks. Wow. Um, so, you know, in terms of like a sentinel, yeah, you're, you're really seeing that only kind of in group or herding species. I see. Because basically that, that sentinel kind of has to give up its, its feeding time. Yeah. Um, compared to the other to the others mm-hmm. so so you kind of have to have that ability to just rotate through um yeah. from one individual to the next yeah i don't know if you'd know this but would 
is it only one sentinel per herd usually? I think it's I think it kind of rotates that that there may be, you know, one does it for so long and then that one starts feeding and then oh another one has to take over. Wow. Through, um, you think through communication? I, I don't know, if th- but it it may just be of, hey, I that the one that was paying attention says, you know, feels like, hey, I, I've got to start eating now. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm not going to spend all my time just being the, the sentinel. Like, and so then, then some individual realizes that, hey, I've got to start paying attention. Gotcha. Now. Um, um and so, okay, so sentinel versus the leader of a herd, right? Usually it's a doe that yeah, leads the yeah. herd. Yeah, so, so axis do have a, a, a matriarchal um, leader, basically. Hmm. Um, but, the, but the thing about axis is, and, and there's literature out there, we saw it in, in spotlight surveys, is these, these really big herds, you know, that, that may be up to a couple hundred individuals, they break and form constantly. Um, it's not just this this hundred individuals that are together all the time. I see. Um, so, you know, there there may be some that peel off, go to another group. Um, for like during our spotlight surveys, the largest group of axis we ever saw was forty something. Hmm. Um, most of the average size was six. Mm-hmm. So what we think it is, and there there's some evidence in the in literature about this, it, that at night they're like in smaller family groups, hmm. um, but then come together during the day as to when they're feeding to to be more you know hurting hurting. But the these large groups they're not forever they they just break and form constantly i see could they be with other herds too because um as you're speaking i'm thinking about hunting in hawaii you know in specific areas and we see that over ridges and down in um um like uh deep uh canyons and that kind of thing we'll see them run over to another side and bump into another herd and that herd will stop. They might even run by that herd and the other herd is because they weren't spooked. They're looking to see why the other ones are running. Mm -hmm. And so you always see that interaction. And I, I always wonder, I'm like, just like you're saying, is this like one humongous herd that gets together at night or is it smaller herds or are they all part of the same herd? Like, you know, you know, it's it's probably, and and using the word herd is is really because because how do you define it? Right, you know right. what is is it that that yeah they they do stay together all the time or you know stay together for X amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's first you know first what's what's that definition? Yeah. In fact, like we even uh, the way we termed it in the in the research was we called groups, right? Just because of of kind of dealing with that definition. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I would say that it's, it's more of these, you know, family groups that kind of come together periodically, you know, maybe during the day, the day for, you know, the daylight hours, mm-hmm. but then break apart. But these family groups may go to, you know, group A and B may be together one day and then B peels off and it's A and C right. together the next day. 
So, and it's, it's never uh, this, this fully constant, Mm -hmm. you know, so so communication wise, maybe they know family groups and know different family groups. So at one point that's that second herd in, in Hawaii may have, may have been with some of those. Right. And, and now they're paying attention, paying attention. So it's, you know the the hurt the hurting aspect because of it that the breaking all the time yeah is is kind of difficult to define right right yeah that's interesting because you will you'll see them you know like a line of them walking down in the gulch and then you'll see them up on the sides of the mountain a little bit and you're and they're very close in proximity and you're i'm always wondering okay the ones that are moving are they part of that herd that's right there close by that they're walking right by or yeah you know especially if you're looking for particular animals or that you've seen certain ones mm-hmm. and, and you know and you're, you're you're back there looking again to see like okay is, are they part are they going to stay in this area yeah. yeah so yeah and it's you know we even when we were doing the spotlight surveys we had to come up with a um a protocol to say you know who there there's several axes in the field mm. and and we id them well so we were counting how many we were counting it by groups and then how many individuals were was in a group so you've you've got to come up with this protocol to say all the, you know is it two separate groups in the field mm. or is it together and everything and you know so we use things like how close were they together you know did they spook when when an alarm bark was made yeah. did they did they all flee in the same direction sure and stuff so and it's it's just because you know yeah they're they're a herding species but it's it not it's very fluid right you right, know it, yeah. it breaks and forms um so proximity wise like this is for hunters if uh let's say you know we go out and we see like a huge buck somewhere okay we lose them somehow um, we come back, we're looking for him in that area. Is it, have you studied, um, as bucks in particular, or just, you know, I don't, I don't know if, if you've studied just the proximity of a particular animal and how far their range would be. Yeah. So, so we did a little bit, we tried to get some collars on, on access. We don't, we're, we're, we're hoping to continue it in the future, but we were only able to get two on, um, but but the data we did have for for we just had two does mm-hmm. and for the most part they stayed in maybe half a square mile mm. um maybe a little bit less than that half but, a square okay but then all of a sudden so that you know 300 320 acres um all of a sudden we had both of those just make like 4 mile trips Wow. You know, so, you know, and then a month later, they would come back. Oh, okay. So it, it's, if for the most part, you're, you might be able to track down the same individual. Yeah. But all of a sudden, that individual may just decide to go somewhere else. Huh. And you may not, not see it again. Possibly for mating, uh, yeah. for, for food, for water, whatever. Yeah, yeah we don't know for, for sure why, but... But yeah, it, you know, with with these does that we had collars on, you know, yeah, they they stayed in a relatively small area, but then all of a sudden she just left, four mm. like four or five miles down. I see. Um, so, you know, there there's a side of that of 
could could you find him again on that if you have access maybe mm-hmm. but but yeah it's you know for the most part you probably would be able to track it down unless it has all of a sudden this urge to go somewhere else yeah so that's kind of random that's most of the time they'll stay in this particular area yeah. gotcha yeah. like bed in a certain area feed mm-hmm. in a certain area have yeah okay gotcha um so that kind of leads me into a, like a, a kind of a broader question about management especially in hawaii right yeah um carrying capacity right i don't know i don't i'm not familiar with any biologists that study access deer in hawaii or the management strategy really because it seems to be random like i'll Mm -hmm. hear that you know one month or you know or one year they're doing like they're trying to manage and or call uh herds you know to 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 calm the population and i don't know um if the management strategy is similar to that of you know here on the mainland for other invasive species could you speak on that at all in Hawaii? Have you talked to anybody or any biologists uh, out there? So, so I have talked to some biologists, mostly on Lanai. Okay. Um, and and a lot of that then is is on you know man, managed land that the state doesn't have have lease on. Right. Um, but you know, take it for for example, uh, what is it? Paluma. Pulu, yeah, Pulama. Um, Pulama. Mm-hmm. Um, so so they do uh management control on on most of lanai where they're going out at night and and harvesting mm-hmm. um you know and and that's for just pure reduction efforts mm-hmm. now the the thing about axis given their their reproductive rates and and everything um, you you'd have to kill us. You'd have to call a significant portion mm-hmm. um, to to really have have impacts. Um, so like uh, in in Texas, basically, where the my research pretty much showed that that we have to be resigned to the fact that regional statewide where they occur, we we cannot get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we can manage, we can control, but the, their numbers are just so great that that we cannot get rid of them mm-hmm. um so you know and then when you add in this side of of private land um in texas where you know you you've got to deal with this almost at an individual landowner level um and the fact that that access are are exists in a very gray legal area in, in texas because they're not legally wildlife because as an invasive species they're not classified as wildlife so um texas parks and wildlife department doesn't have official jurisdiction Mm. so really does that mean that they don't manage them then no they don't um okay so so any kind of management is at the level of an individual landowner wow okay so that's where the landowner's opinions towards access come into play Mm -hmm. of you know, do do the land? Does the landowner want to wipe them all out? Does the landowner want to keep, you know, a good number around for hunting, or does the landowner not want to do anything to them? To them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there there's this this effect there of of different opinions on them, mm-hmm. and really what what we kind of recommended in the research is if you want to have any kind of substantial impact, is you got to have multiple multiple adjacent landowners with the same opinions 
doing this, the same management goals, trying to control access. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, you get into this situation of, you know, you got one guy who really wants to get rid of access and his neighbors don't want to do anything. Mm-hmm. Well, all that's going to happen is the, the guy in the middle who's controlling them, as soon as he eliminates all his access, all the ones from the neighbors are just going to pour onto his place because it's empty. Right. Right. Um, and so if, if you want any significant impact, you've got to work at the scale mm. of multiple landowners together. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, you take, take that into, into Hawaii, it's, you know, potentially the same situation mm-hmm. where, you know, if you want to do management, I mean, they, they're a state game animal in, in Hawaii. So it's a slightly different species, different situation where mm. they, you know, are actually a game animal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, it's, you know, you, you've almost got to be working at, at the level of, of landowners to, mm-hmm. to say that they, they are over, well, are likely over carrying capacity. Yeah. Um, in Hawaii. Yeah. And, and in te- Texas, I mean, there, you know, it, it doesn't take long when you see these areas that have a lot of access to realize that, that the vegetation has been overgrazed. Um, and bare spots, and and we kind of mentioned it earlier. Of you know the vegetation being overgrazed leads to bare bare ground, which leads to erosion, which then leads to problems. in, in Texas, that's in problems in the rivers. In Hawaii, that's problems of erosion and erosion down to the reefs. Right. So and it's it's this situation of you know there there is significant impact of of access. Mm. Um. And, and a lot of it is both in, in the research that some work that we're, we're trying to publish now um, and then just observation of, you know, you, you're, you're, you've got some impact that from just overgrazing and erosion mm-hmm. into these highly sensitive areas. I see. So. Is there, is there a... You know, you're a doctor, so you, and you've studied this. So, if in your opinion, your professional opinion, um, you know Texas pretty well, and you said you've uh, talked to people on Lanai and that kind of thing. In your opinion, how? Be, and this is strictly because they're great table fare. Number mm-hmm. one, they are a really um, sought after trophy animal. Mm-hmm. Um, their hides are very beautiful. Yeah. Um, and they're just beautiful creatures. Number, you know, yeah. there's a number of things that why you'd want to keep access deer around. But like you said, there's they, they multiply quickly. They they can easily overtake a landscape, especially, you know, you just mentioned that they're resilient as far as their diet. They can pretty much eat anything. Yeah. Now, in your opinion, your professional opinion, how would you manage access deer in Hawaii? I would would base basically. Both in Hawaii and Texas, you've almost got to do like a a public relations campaign mm-hmm. to say, and and I think this is potentially the biggest thing is there are places in both states where people don't realize what what we what is happening um, from them being there. You know, yeah, they get this side of of you know they are really good to eat. They're you know they're. They, they are beautiful, and part of that is is it gets into what I almost call like Bambi syndrome, mm-hmm. where axes have spots their entire lives, 
they they look like Bambi. Mm-hmm. Um, so for some people, you know, that's that's enough to not want to shoot them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, in in terms of of management, you know, first of all, you've almost got to do this po- this public relations campaign to say to make, to show people that yes, they they are having these impacts. And then, you know, beyond that, you could be looking at, at localized control efforts in, in, set in you know, areas that may be sensitive to erosion. Mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's prioritize our time in those areas. And then, you know, we, in, in another paper we're, we're working on, you know, we, we suggest maybe it's worth fencing. You know, fencing is an expensive prospect. You know, in Texas, it's it's expensive, and then add that to try and get you know all the materials to Hawaii. It's I'm sure it's sure it's even more expensive. Mm-hmm. So you know that that's an an expensive prospect, but do we fence highly sensitive areas mm-hmm. and and just you know keep the access out of those areas that would be sensitive to erosion? Sure. You know, so that that's maybe something. But, you know, so, you know, there, there's this kind of multiple level aspect of, of management of, you know, working with the public because that it, any any state wildlife agency should realize that, you know, the public is a huge part of their their clientele. Mm. They've they've got to work with the public to say, you know, for for various reasons. But but then you know controlling them via via harvest and like I said I mean you you cannot kill enough axis um, you know maybe you could do it on the islands if you really went hard at it um, just because of the the scale of land that you're working at mm-hmm. um, but in Texas you could not kill every axis it is not numerically possible mm-hmm. um, so. You know your your efforts have to be focused, and and say, you know, I I'm going to to kind of focus in these areas that are at risk, and then do I fence fence them up? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and that in in Hawaii may be a possibility because your your other large mammal mammals are are mostly domestic. Mm-hmm. Um, in in Texas, we would kind of worry about that because. Yeah, we're fencing. We may fence these riparian areas around the rivers for for protection, but then we're also excluding whitetail from them. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not really realistic, yeah, to to do that in in Texas. I see. You say riparian. The meaning of riparian is basically like a like waterway. Yeah, a cor- corridor around the river. Corridor river, around and the river. that's it. It's those are important for numerous reasons. I mean, first you you. F- go down to the river so you know you're looking at at water that's ultimately provide you know used mm-hmm. for a, you know and then the, the the river that we were working on down in texas is um labeled an ecologically significant stream by texas parks and wildlife department and the reason it's got several endemic populations populations you know species that occur really much only there mm-hmm. Um, including the state game fish, um, so it's it, you know it's an important population for that. What's the state game fish? Uh, Guadalupe bass. Oh, is that good eating? Uh, yeah, some 
and mostly a sport fish. Oh, okay, gotcha. Um, but ultimately, that river, uh, the South Llano River, provides a is part of the water source for San Antonio. Hmm. So you know this large metropolitan of and but so you don't want anything in the river that could damage the health of that health of that river. Sure. Yeah. And then, you know, so that goes back into erosion of, you know, the the banks are are largely held together by by native grasses. Native mm-hmm. grasses have huge root systems mm-hmm. that um if you actually look at stuff online like it'll show a native grass has an 8 foot deep root system but the part that's above the ground is maybe like a foot tall. So the majority of that entire plant is below ground. You're kidding. Yeah. Eight feet? Yeah. It, it, it can be huge root systems. Wow. Um, so, Which is good, right? That's yeah, resilient it's, it's, grass. It's, 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 it's great because that holds together the banks. Yeah. Now, axis are one of those species that they come in, they consume everything above ground, and you know if there's nothing above ground to photosynthesize, that whole root system dies, mm-hmm. and you you know you don't have anything holding the ground together anymore. Mm-hmm. And and part of the characteristic of of riparian soils is that they do allow water to go to flow through it. Mm-hmm. But you need those root systems to hold it together. I see. And without them, that just leads into erosion. I see. How much of that grass is just just because you just said this? How much of that grass needs to be above ground in order for photosynthesis to, it, to part keep of it, it active? Is, part of it is you've got to it the you know photosynthesizes one thing, but you've also got to have the the source of it that it can see back out. Um, so I mean, you, mm. you you know if you're down to the ground that that's eliminating photosynthesis, but you know you you the plant has to be healthy enough that it can produce its reproductive um you know sources so mm-hmm. i and it, there there may not be an exact number to say you know how how much of it has to be above ground but it's it's enough that hey this this can't produce it's what it needs to produce gotcha. um and then yeah the the root system dies okay yeah but sorry to get off topic there no Just, problem. yeah you know because uh you know a lot it seems like you know a lot. <laughs> so, uh, so public, like some kind of public relations campaign, <laughs> and to, to get the public involved, especially hunters, because hunters is a big—they're a big workforce that can help you. Yeah. And then the other part of this is—is is there anything that uh, outside the box, anything super creative, or anything that nature could do itself? to to help out with this problem even something that's completely wild that that yeah so so a couple things when i was in texas first of all we had a 250 year flood event and so it you know that that's basically saying that this level of flood only happens every 250 years now that's not necessarily true anymore because of condition conditions changing but it was a major flood event. the The river went from from three feet to uh, thirty five feet in less than six hours. Jeez! So major flood event. The the this wa- was when I'm sorry. What this year? was October uh, twenty eighteen. Wow. Um. So, 
the the initial wall of water that was coming that came like as the first part of the flood was uh, six feet tall. So in this this huge just wall of water moving through, and it caught up anything. In fact, I mean, four people died died in it mm-hmm. um, when their camper got got uh, picked up. But you know that that's just one event. The other event we had was um, Winter Storm Uri, which if you remember back um, a few years ago when when Texas got Texas had that really bad winter storm in, in February, I think it was twenty. 21 mm-hmm. um where you know it was very cold weather and sub-zero weather in parts of texas for for multiple days and you know that just doesn't happen in texas mm-hmm. but is that um, when you guys lost your grid yeah okay. yeah yeah so um but you know th- those two very unique you know rather unique rare climatic events both of them probably had significant impacts on the axis. You know, we can't really quantify what the flood had, and that's a much more localized level. Mm-hmm. You know, but I'm sure it picked up some axis as it was coming through. Mm-hmm. Um, but but her but winter storm Yuri, that we're we're working on another paper to say you know what what impacts that had on the axis population, but uh, beyond just that not being normal for Texas. Axis are from India. They're a tropical species. Mm. They're not meant for sub-zero weather multiple days in a row. Mm. I, and they they have very thin high skin over their high, hindquarters. Mm. Um, and there are places where where we've estimated at a localized level, there may have been 20% mortality. Wow. That that twenty percent of the axis died in a period of five days. Mm. Um, you know, one one picture we saw was literally a guy's um, truck and like a, maybe a sixteen foot trailer just loaded full of dead axis. There's wow. probably seventy dead axis in that photo. Wow! And it's just they died from probably numerous things, but most of it was exposure. Yeah. I mean, that's you know that that temperature of you know white whitetail obviously in Texas you know it's a different subspecies of whitetail than than is up here in the north but um, so they've not overly evolved for it but they're still you know this the species whitetail that that can withstand cold weather mm-hmm. um, but but Axis they're they're from India they're they're not evolved to deal with that kind of weather for that long right so um barring like big events like that um anything else that could control um their population naturally not nothing that we'd be willing to do i mean because it naturally you may be introducing a predator oh no we're, no. we're not willing to do that anywhere people, people in hawaii would revolt yeah yeah, yeah there's there no, that's not happening no predators coming yeah, so so really, you know, if if you want to, like I said, bumper and bullet, you know, it's yeah, either it, run them over or shoot them. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you know that that's that's how. But you know, the first thing is like like we said of of getting with the public to say, 
you know, because just advocating to say that we need to, to kill a bunch of them, we need to shoot a bunch of them, is not going to go over great. Yeah. You know, you, you've got to first do that public relations to say this is what, what, they're, co- what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of my research was actually for in Texas, was kind of that step to say, hey, here's the, the scientific evidence that they're doing X, Y, and Z that are impacting native habitat and native wildlife mm-hmm. that, hey, we can't just ignore them. Yeah. We, we've got we've to put the management forward, you know, to say that this is why we need to control them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's kind of the first step of, you know, you've got to have the justification to the public sure. to, to say, you know, it is worth it to do this. Yeah. Even as a hunter, it's, um, it's uncomfortable to, to hear the word call or to hear the word, um, what's the other, um, well, euthanasia or just, yeah, just just getting rid of them. Yeah. Yeah, There's another word that I'm, 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 I'm blanking on, but, um, but just the fact the the vision of somebody driving or flying around a helicopter with a gun and, and mowing down animals just in my mind, just tells me somebody screwed up some yeah, somewhere. Yeah, you you know, and and I can, I feel the same way. Of you know, there's eradication. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Sorry. There there's this this side of okay. It's sometimes you know part of the work I'm doing here um, at Michigan State University is is we do actually need to to reduce whitetail numbers in East Lansing and Meridian Township uh, next door. That that we do rely on a call. Really? Um, yeah. Like but helicopter type stuff. No, it's um, USDA Wildlife Services comes in in East Lansing contract to call, and then there's a hunting program um, and a police call call in Meridian Township next door um, that that they reduce numbers. But when when you really think about it in terms of you know like you said a hel- you know shooting from a helicopter and everything. What you know, the species that we pretty much really only do that for is feral pigs, yeah. and that's because their numbers are so great that that we almost have to get in this extreme situation. Yeah, but even that though, yeah. I mean, I get it. I believe me. Like especially yeah. if I was a farmer, or if I had just seen the the sheer number of them and. You know, maybe that could be justified, but from an outsider's point of view and looking at a helicopter and seeing like people yeah. killing animals from a helicopter is yeah. just not well, a good and look. Then, and then the other thing is, is that whole, le- you know, let them lie where you shoot them and then you don't pick them up. Yeah. That's you know, and that, and that from a hunting perspective, that's just like, to me, that's morally wrong. Yeah. But, but yeah, and there, there is this, this huge side and, you know, here, here in, the the programs that we work with, all the deer get donated to to um, food pantries. Yeah. So I they're they're the deer get used. Sure. But but in situations where you know you are in this, we just have to eradicate or we're we're in call mode, and there, there's potentially this, you know, let them lie thing where you don't pick them up and and don't mm. use the animal. Yeah. And, is and, that good for the soil, or, or it, what, what's the there, deal there? It's more just logistically. You're shooting so many of them that it's you know hard to pick up. But sure, you know, 
say that deer say that deer has chronic wasting disease and then that's not good but uh, in the the kind of the situation of you know we're just shooting t- uh you know for drastic levels i mean yeah it 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 takes into getting a really bad situation mm. to get to that point okay um, so you mentioned chronic wasting disease and i wanted to get into that later but since you mentioned it i also read in your research that um axis are either completely resistant to it or it's very rare in access yeah so so we did we did some genetics work and basically what we think is is axis are probably susceptible but they at this point there's never been a positive test in axis why partially because of sample size i when when i published that work um texas had had done over over a hundred thousand tests on whitetail and mule deer combined, they had done 187 on axis at that time. So sample size, you're never going to detect it at that number. Sure. Um, but then genetically, we also thought that because they're they're more similar to elk, um, and elk are less susceptible than whitetail are. Mm-hmm. That we thought that maybe they they could get it, but it would be you know at lower levels, and it might be relatively rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the thing about that is, axis and whitetail have a little bit different genetics, and genetics plays a huge part into CWD, which is a much longer discussion. Sure, yeah. But um, the because axis and whitetail are a little bit different, the the possibility of interspecies transmission between the two is not that great. Um, axis would be more likely to get it from an elk. Uh, so it'd be the situation of because this these these two species may not be real at risk of interspecies transmission. Mm-hmm. Maybe we've got some level of of help there to say. You know, Axis may not get it from whitetail. And then if worse comes to worse and, and there is, you know, we do start finding CWD positive Axis, could they then give it back to whitetail? Mm. That's what we're really worried about. Yeah. You know, it's, it's could this spread of CWD be impacted um, with the movement of Axis? Right. Do you see, do you see it in elk? Yeah. You do just not. It's just not as no. It's prevalent. it's not as prevalent. I mean, in fact, um, typically, you look in areas where where both acts, both whitetail and elk are are current occurring, and mm. both species have it. It's primarily like Wyoming, Colorado um, area where there where there are both species. Elk are usually like anywhere from maybe like a sixth of the prevalence of whitetail to maybe like a tenth. Mm-hmm. So it's somewhere in there. But it's, yeah, at, um, elk prevalence rates are are quite a bit lower on average than, than whitetail are. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that may just be from, you know, how many we harvest and, and stuff. And, I see. But, but yeah, there, that's there's... Good, that's good news, though. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's great news. Yeah. I and mean, then, you know, that... Um, so to get in a little bit of the weeds here, but if you separate um, 
there's two subfamilies of deer within the greater deer taxonomic family. Mm-hmm. You've got the um, old world, so Asia, Europe, and everything, and got the new world, um, North Amer- North and South America. Okay. So the two these two families are evolved in in you know the basically two geographic areas of well the new world species. There's evidence to say that they're more susceptible. Um, so that would include white-tailed mule deer. Elk are actually an old-world species. They their ancestors are from uh, Asia and then crossed the Bering Sea land bridge. Mm, um, so like stags, red stag. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, since elk are actually an old-world species, well, there's a genetic marker in the old-world species that may provide resistance overall. Wow. And that's that's actually what we think may be benefiting Axis. Is is that one genetic marker? Gotcha. Is there a way to? Is there a um, old world species that's similar to whitetail? Not really. I mean, it's uh, some. There are old world species that are susceptible. I mean, well, like I said, elk, um, psycho deer are susceptible. Um, you say susceptible. Mean, yeah, mean they can get it. They can get it. Yeah. So is. You mentioned New World and Old World, and Old World being more less susceptible, you would say. Yeah. Is there a species that, and this is me just thinking off the top of my head, that you could bring over from Old World and have them breed with the whitetails to have them less susceptible? No. I, as far as we know, there are um, no Old World species that, that can hybridize with whitetail. You call that hybridize? Yeah. Yeah. So, and it, you know, like... Whitetail and mule deer can hybridize, and actually, they regularly do. Mm. Um, but but Axis and whitetail? No, no evidence. I, I was asked that question a lot mm-hmm. in Texas. There is no evidence that an Axis and that Axis and whitetail can hybridize. Mm. Um, now there are other exotic species in Texas that can hybridize with Axis, Psyca mm. among them. Mm-hmm. Um, so psycho deer, psycho deer, whatever. Yeah, wow. they can hybridize. Does that happen a lot? Um, so I don't think so. Um, the evidence that we that is for it, um, it was in a z- captive zoo situation. I don't think it was at, like an official zoo, but um, in I think Tennessee mm. that it that it happened, and then I had um. A guy, in fact, I'm sure he's going to be listening to this and he's going to notice this when I say it, but he sent me a picture of one that he swore up and down was was a hybrid um, between Axis and Psyca. And the, the thing about, <laughs> about hybridizing is the way you detect it is you look at that markers on the X chromosome and the Y chromosome. So the only way you can do that is you need a buck that has you know that has an X chromosome, so you, we can do genetics on it to say that X chromosome is from one species, and then we do genetics on the Y chromosome to say it's from another species. Mm-hmm. Well, this individual was a doe, uh, I so see. Can, yeah. we we can't you yeah. can't do it. Interesting. Um, I was wondering if he was looking at an antler configuration or what. It, it was it was a combination of what the coat looked like. Um, and everything and some other factors, but yeah, it, we, we just couldn't do it because it, there, mm. there is no, you know, we didn't have 
both the X and Y chromosome from a buck. Yeah. Can, um, can elk and, and axis hybridize? Not that I've ever seen, but uh, I, it maybe. Yeah, I know. You like know, the size, there's a size difference there, yeah. but they're, if they're similar in genetic yeah. uh, I, makeup. You know, hybridizing is there, there's a number of things that you've, you've got to overcome. You know, things that, you know, phys- physical situation is one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, size and for the most part, that can be overcome. But you've got other things like temporal, um, you know, species that do re- rely on a set breeding period period of the year. Mm-hmm. Like like elk, does that match up when when axis are are capable of breed, breeding? Yeah, different, and, a little different. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, that's that's a barrier that has to be overcome. You know, there, there's others. So you know, maybe they they could, but genetically. But it's you know multiple other things that that may prevent it. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, staying on whitetails for a second, I've hunted whitetails up in um, the northern part of Washington, in more of like rugged country, mountainous country up there. And you've hunted whitetails stand hunting, yes, right? Primarily. Yeah. Big difference between those two species. Of course, mine's what I did is more spot and stock with those. I've no, I noticed that they were very weary t- as well but of course not in herds and very difficult to find I, it was a hard yeah. hunt for me yeah um as far as the species themselves go those two species or the, the the same species in two different geographical locations are do you have from are, are you familiar with hunting them stock, spot and stock in country like not that? not really i mean you know my my hunting for whitetail growing up in wisconsin was was purely stand hunting yeah um, and then even when I went to, to Kentucky, um, you know, that was pretty much all stand hunting. Yeah. In, in Texas, we did a little bit of movement around, but again, it was a large portion where, where I was hunting was, was a large portion of stand hunting. Mm-hmm. So I, and it's, I, I've never really done kind of the, the typical out West spot and stock, um, kind of hunt it's pretty cool yeah yeah it's hard yeah i want to get into it but yeah, yeah a lot of a lot of glassing and a lot of yeah, yeah. It's, it's awesome man yeah hard hard hunting to yeah. go too um so you're just for people who don't know stand hunting I'm, there's gonna be a ton of people who know stand hunting and i'm an idiot but i don't know stand hunting and it sounds to me like oh you get up in a tree stand you just wait right <laughs> and you basically wait along a corridor where you know that white tails are rubbing yeah. and and or walking or feeding yes yeah yeah, or or over a field, and and you're you know relying at you know you may be over a cornfield, and you're relying on them coming to the corn to feed or or something. But or yeah, water, right? Yeah, or something but like it's that. it's some it's either some kind of corridor or some kind of draw that yeah. that you're you're waiting for a deer to come to. Right, and people think it's easy, but it's actually not. Right, there's no, a lot of patience. It, there's a lot yeah. of like. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a lot of uh, b- before smartphones. It was a it was a lot of waiting. Yeah. Now now it's a lot of playing games and yeah. hoping that you actually look up when the deer comes by. Now <laughs> now looking up, do they look up? Um, that deer don't tend to really look up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not because they, they don't really have an aerial predator. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they don't have hawks then. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so they don't funny. they don't really tend to look up that much, I see. Um, unless they notice something, you I know, see. unless they hear something. Uh-huh. But but yeah, and it's you know, and that's part of the reason for tree 
tree stands, but mm-hmm. you know, done a lot of stand hunting and ground blinds and okay. and stuff. So and it's that's another know. one. Ground blinds are they not? Yeah. Are they that? I don't want to say stupid, but are they not like okay? That wasn't there before, or do you leave the blind out there? I, for I tend to leave, I tend to put put it out for. I may put it out like a month before season, mm. just to get them to used to it. Get them used to it. I see. So they're looking yeah. and like walking around it, maybe, yeah. and then yeah, and that notice, you know, and then yeah. I also put put brush around it so it looks more like a looks more like a bush than just this this square shaped object that just all of a sudden got put in the put in the woods. You know, break that smells up like plastic. Yeah, break up its <laughs> pattern a little bit. Yeah. Um. But but yeah, it it's. Yeah, I tend to put it out, you know, at least a couple weeks before I would be out. Gotcha. Would you say that um, stand hunting would be successful in Hawaii for Axis? It can be. I mean, actually, so we did some stuff in in tech in Texas, um, and you know, I I was able to get within thirty forty yards in, mm-hmm. a, in a ground blind. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. So, so and it, it can be effective. So, same kind of thing, just getting them used to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you just, even with their, their extra wariness, you just have to get them, get them used to it. Mm-hmm. And, and don't make any sudden movements, even in the ground blind. Right. You know, be deliberate and slow on it to, okay. to kind of make sure you're not spooking them or, or, you know, don't smash your elbow against the side of the blind and make this loud noise and, right, right. and stuff. So How is your eyesight? Pre- I think pretty good. Yeah, Axis or yeah. Whitetail? Both. 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 Okay. I, you know, Whitetail, like I said before, you know, they group with turkeys a lot just for, you know, that turkey eyesight is really good. But, mm. um, you know, for, for Axis, I think the majority of the time that I did spook them, was via eyesight, not mm. not smell. Gotcha. Um, so, uh, as far as vocalization, to um, you know, you said they're similar to elk. They vocalize a lot more than uh, whitetail and mm-hmm. and mule deer. Um, and I want I'd love to talk with you about mule deer if you know anything about that later. But not very much. <laughs> oh, okay, I love mule deer, man. That's great. But um, would you say that because I've seen you know different calls, the the the, the doe call for. Uh, an axis doe it seems to me that it's similar to an elk cow call the ro- the roar and or bugle of a uh, yeah. elk and mule de- or um axis buck are v- very different yeah did did you ever see people using buck calls for axis yeah I and mean, there's a there is a guy um in texas who who started making calls for for access, mm-hmm. um, companies called Easy Access, mm-hmm. um, and and they do work and and stuff. So, you know, you've you kind of you you can use the calls, but I I kind of almost broke it down into like there's there's probably three primary calls that that Access make. There there's the buck roar or bugle or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. That that really is. It, it kind of serves the same purpose as an elk bugle. Mm-hmm. There is some, you know, locating other bucks and bucks and bucks advertising presence to doe, does and stuff. And, you know, so it's kind of a similar purpose. Mm-hmm. There's the, that, that very sharp, high-pitched alarm bark that mm-hmm. mostly does make, but I have seen bucks do it. Mm-hmm. 
um, that 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 really is a get out of dodge call. So you don't want to use you know, that. No, that's <laughs> a get. You know, that's an alarm. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what you hear when when they when you do spook them. Mm-hmm. It's this this alarm bark that hey we're we're that's the warning to the rest of the herd that mm-hmm. hey let's get out of here. Yeah. And then there's there's a softer doe call which you have to be pretty close to actually hear, mm-hmm. but you can use it as a as a call mm-hmm. if you if you get you know you have to be pretty close to hear them do it. Mm-hmm. But you can use it as a call to to bring them in. Is that the one that sounds like a cow elk? Yeah, yeah. It's it's this real soft call. It's it's almost the what I think it's for is kind of like a locator call mm. to see can they find the rest of the herd. I see. Um, or are they you know is a doe trying to find its fawn? Mm-hmm. Um, but is there a hoochie mama type of call for bucks, like a? You know, something that a buck would come into that's a cow call? Not really. I don't think so. Uh-huh. I think you're almost relying on, on the the buck call to to kind of challenge them. That's more of a challenging roar. Yeah. I see. I, you, but you, you might get, with the herding aspect, you might get a buck to come in with a doe mm. if you use the doe call. Oh, I see. You know, so... A so, buck trailing a doe. Yeah. So you may you may get that situa- situation. Uh-huh. But, but yeah, it's it's really in in terms of if you're just challenging the buck, like you're probably doing it with a with a buck call I to see. say, I see. you know, you're really challenging him. Do you know why they do it? You've heard them in threes, the yeah. roar, yeah. Roar, so I roar. I I've heard them. It's usually in in three to five. Three to five, okay. And and part of it is generally three. And deeper, like a deeper pitch, yeah, is an older buck. Mm-hmm. Five and higher pitched is a younger buck. Oh, really? Yeah. So I mean, there there's a bit of that. Lower and deeper. Yeah. And then higher and and uh, you know, and, and, and more and, and more. Yeah. That, Interesting. That's generally a younger younger individual yeah. is is kind of that higher pitched and. Now, and that brings in me into another another topic, the stuff that we're working on of, you know, when when do these bucks reach that that trophy status? Yeah. Um, so you're talking age wise. Yeah, age wise. Okay. So you know, whitetail. You know, they're they're probably best trophy status. It's like five. Mm-hmm. Um, axis are still growing significantly at five really yeah so i think they're not based upon some aging evidence and then comparing that to antlers i don't think they're you know truly trophy you know very nice long 33 30 you know four inch antler beam and and a lot of good mass Mm. eight to nine you're kidding no that so i it it takes significantly longer to, to get, you know, what, based upon, so we did aging via, via tooth. So, um, there's, there's a ring called the cementum annuli in every map, every mammal in your tooth. It's basically like a tree ring. Mm-hmm. And if you pull the tooth and you get it sectioned, you can see how old they are. Mm. 
Now, we did that. We compared it to, to antler size, and we were trying to develop a, a tooth wear method so that you could just look at the wear on the teeth like you would for a whitetail and, and estimate how old it is. Mm-hmm. But what, what that get into is you say, you know, we were able to look at, at antler size versus, versus um, tooth versus age, and their first year, year one, their axis are a spike. Their year two, they are basically they they might have started to grow their their um, brow point, mm-hmm. and are maybe like ten inches long. Mm-hmm. Year three, their their brow point is is evident. You know, maybe like two like three four inches long, mm-hmm. um, and they may have gotten that cudgel point, so the point that comes up over the back of the head. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're usually in maybe the beam is like maybe in the high teens. Okay. Um, four, they're some, you know, got all their points. They're somewhere maybe in like the middle, low to middle twenties. Five, they may reach that 30 inch that, that people call a trophy, Mm -hmm. but their antlers are really narrow. They're really spindly. I see. Um, and then after that, they just keep putting on mass, but after five, after five, so you may have, if you're just looking at length, then yeah, you may have that 30 inch at five. Mm-hmm. But if, if you want a really nice trophy animal, it's a few more years of putting on mass of uh, the, the antlers that probably until like eight. Um, and, and the oldest buck we had, I was at a, it was harvested at a, at a state park um, public drawn hunt. Mm-hmm. It was killed by a 14-year-old kid. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. This buck was, um, I think he was 11 years old. Mm-hmm. Absolutely trophy animal. Wow. Beautiful trophy. Um, thir- I think he was 35 inches long uh-huh. with really nice mass and, every- and everything. And you dated his teeth. Yep. Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah, I actually, I actually uh, went, because we had to pull the jaw out. To, to do that so mm-hmm. I had to like collect the entire lower jaw mm-hmm. I think I asked the kid's dad at like a dozen times if it was okay if I did that because <laughs> I, I said I like I kept telling him like you know if I do this there is no way you can mount you can like do a shoulder mount of this deer yeah and you know I said I was a 14 year old kid I'm gonna make absolutely sure yeah because they, they eventually did a European skull mount oh but, that's cool that's still beautiful but yeah like I I made darn sure that he was not going to mount that deer yeah. before before I pulled the jaw out. But it was, I mean, it, you know, really nice looking animal mm. at at eleven years old. Yes, and yeah. you, I mean, first of all, you'd be lucky to get a white tail to live that long. Mm. And if he does, he's going to be so far on decline. Really, you know his so, his antlers are not going to be trophy. So I've heard that the decline. Some people will tell you that, um, or I mean, they're not a doctor like you are. So this is like really great information. Mm-hmm. So for the people out there that think that axes get on decline after like eight nine years, they are still growing. I think they're still growing, or or they may be like stable, I you see. know, level. Um, you know, I did not find any real substantial evidence. Of, of decline. You know, I had some pictures of ones that basic, you know, from trail cameras that basically all they had left was, was a short ish brow point mm-hmm. 
and a main beam. You know, the, their their um, back point was was pretty much gone. So and there and there was some you know photographic evidence of maybe ones that were on on a decline. Uh-huh. But you know, I wasn't able to get. I don't have the teeth for it to so you don't to know say really, yeah. you know how old it was. But but just looking at its body, it was old. It's an like, old deer, like yeah. real old. Gotcha. You know, maybe 13, 14 years old. I see. Um, so you wouldn't say in your professional opinion that uh, Axis deer buck would be on decline until they're at least, what, 10? At, at least. At maybe least. older. 12, 12, 13, maybe. 12, 13. And that's when you think they'll decline. Yeah. So I, I think if you if you harvest them in 8, 9, probably primarily, maybe up into 10, mm-hmm. that's their best. That's their best Best years. they're going to get. Gotcha. So if you were, you're hunting, uh, you know, whether it's Hawaii and or Texas and you're seeing smaller bucks, you really should let them go. Yeah. Just let the smaller bucks go. If you yeah. want, if you're wanting a, like a real trophy, then you just wait. You yeah. just wait. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you, you get into things like, okay, how do we manage for trophies? Yeah. And there's a lot of research out there, but, but really, you know, take for a thing of like, we want to want a particular buck to be the breeder. Mm-hmm. Now, in Axis, that's really difficult because there's just so many does that, and and they come into heat at various times. Mm-hmm. You're never going to be able to control to say a particular buck is is the breeder. Mm-hmm. So you know if you're you're constant. So so that that'd be really difficult. And actually, there's research out there for whitetail. That basically says if you wanted to control to have a have a particular buck be the breeder, mm-hmm. you need to kill every other buck. Like, ah, like he needs to be the only buck present. Ah, I see. So and it it's not realistic, right? Right. You know to to kind of do that. I mean, you can do it at some some level, but you know if if you're saying that this is the only guy I want breeding it, you can't really do it. I see. Um, I've he- I've also heard too that. Um, you, most or some people would think that it's really because of the buck like oh this buck has good genetics so let this buck breed the does but i've also heard that it's in the doe genetics yeah yeah and then the fat content yeah. of the doe is that true yep yeah antler genetics actually are quite a bit from the doe really what, um, what percentage would you say i don't know for sure but mm-hmm. i mean it from from stuff i've seen that it's probably more towards the doe than the really? buck really Really? Yeah, I think so. And it's this fat content part of it, or yeah, some of just it is, the healthiness? Is just that that basically that doe gets through pregnancy and can put all can put all the resources into the the fawn. Mm. That you know, basically, so that that fawn starts out with a good you know good nutrition, good life, sure, good life. Because if it's struggling through its first year. I then, see. Yeah, it, you know, it may not be be great. Okay. Um. So you know, so so yeah, there there is, and and you do look at at breeders who who are trying to raise these very big trophies, and they have realized that in the last ten years or so, mm-hmm. that if a if a particular doe produces a buck that is really really nice, then keep that doe around. Interesting. Gotcha. You know that 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 may be the the doe to to breed. I see. 
Utah. So you've seen from being in Texas and seeing so many trophies and so many private uh, landowners, I'm sure you've seen your fair share of outfitters and or breeders mm-hmm. who are really into it. Um, have you seen any like really like amazing success stories that you could you could impart on anybody who's listening who's either a breeder or looking to breed or or just looking like if they live in a certain area for their trophy class what to do what kind of animals to call in order to keep your trophy class high yeah, in your area not, not a great expert on that uh-huh. uh, and it's it's basically you know yeah you know if take for example we had one time where axis Axes can be freely trapped and moved and sold in Texas because they're an exotic animal. Mm-hmm. So they don't fall under, you know, market hunting restrictions from from state and federal agencies. So there's no rules there. There's no, just like there, you can take yeah, whatever you want. Yeah. So so we had a buck that was was trapped. Um he was thirty six inches long. He had had really nice mass. He went to auction and sold for $14,000. And all I'm positive that he's been a stud, that he was a stud buck the rest of his life. Sure. At a breeder. So, you know, that, that guy was relying on the, hey, can we produce really nice bucks from buck genetics? Mm-hmm. Maybe. I, I don't know much of, of the breeding and raising side i know the wild side sure um so you know my my suggestion would be you know yeah if you can if you have a really nice buck you know maybe have him be the breeder Mm -hmm. and then second like i said if you have a doe that is producing really nice deer Mm -hmm. keep her yeah you know have her be a breed breeding doe gotcha what about genetics for antler growth is it like I see a lot of salt licks. Some people will feed corn. Some yeah, people have I, feeders. It's, it's really a, a timing side of you know when do you feed protein versus versus energy. Um, you know, so I, again, my my nutritional knowledge is not at that level is not great. Mm-hmm. But you know, really, you've got to be you you've got like if you're feeding protein stuff you know, stuff, then that's got to be done at the right time mm-hmm. to to make sure that that is being put into antler growth. Yes, so that yeah. might be during summer, summer in, in whitetail. In, in Axis, they're growing their antlers from February to May mm-hmm. primarily. And then they're, you know, and that's that's just part of the population. There's a whole other population that is, is hard-antlered in winter. Mm-hmm. That's you weird, know, isn't it? I mean, yeah, that's, it, it's, is it because there's just so many of them? They just so, breed all year so round? There is a, there, they are a couple things. First, does can come into heat all year round. Mm-hmm. There is evidence that bucks, their sperm is viable regardless of antler status. So in, to, to put that in other words, that, in whitetail, they can only really breed when their antlers are hard. Hmm. Um, that's when their sperm is viable. Really? Um, okay. That's whitetail. Yeah. In, in Axis, we've got some evidence that says sperm is viable even if they're in velvet antler or they're recently shed 
or you know or they're in hard antler wow so you know so bucks can really breed any time of the year and that's where it comes into first of all you know in a wild setting is you're trying to control for the one buck to breed mm-hmm. when he, because he's you know he can fight off and and dominate the rest of the bucks well you really can't do that when because what in when he's doesn't have antlers there's other bucks that could be breeding sure so you know there there's that side of it of you know you really can't control that in a wild setting you control it in a in a captive setting where you're only letting the one buck access to the does Mm -hmm. but um but yeah so because they can breed you know they can both sexes can breed year round um but then there there's kind of these two primary ruts one is in in june um at least in Texas, one is in, in June and July. Mm-hmm. And then the other is more in approximately November. Really? Yeah. Is same, do you think same in Hawaii? I've heard, yeah, that, that they are, you know, they are kind of this bimodal two period, two primary periods. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and go back to India, they, they do breed year round and do have this, this two primary periods of rut. I see. Uh, and so, so it is in their, their genet, you know, their instinct, genetics, whatever you want to phrase it as, um, to be breeding throughout the year, mm. and and part of that is there, there are a number of tropical species who do do that, because the, the conditions are are pretty much available year round. Mm-hmm. So like in 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 Axis, what we think, so what what drives estrus or heat in in white in um, does is we really think that they just have the nutritional status to go through a pregnancy. Axis, hmm. yeah, just does it, in it, general, it, or well, in axis, okay, axis does because um, you know pregnancy is hugely energetically expensive, expensive in wildlife. Right. You know, so you don't, you know, that that animal needs to have the the resources, the nutritional resources. Not only on the landscape, but also you know already in their body, you know the fat reserves potentially mm-hmm. um, to to get through it. But then even I mean once you once they get through it, once they get birth, lactation is hugely energetically expensive. Mm-hmm. So you know that that animal really needs to be in the nutritional status to get through the pregnancy. And so what we think drove drives axis into estrus is just that they. They have the nutritional reserves to do it. So if they're just a really healthy doe, they could just they, yeah. just jump into estrus. Pretty much, really. You know, and and now there's a couple things about that. Is is their their gestation is approximately seven and a half months. Um, they can uh, get pregnant again while lactating. It's not hugely common in in wildlife it common enough but not hugely common um are you talking uh, i know we keep jumping back and forth between whitetail and axis but you're talking axis now okay yeah so an axis can arguably become pregnant every nine months Mm. because it's it's a seven and a half month gestation and then they can become pregnant about a month into lactation again Mm. so 
they, they physically can become pregnant every nine months. We think they mostly do a yearly period, but there are some who would be capable of, of, you know, giving birth every, every nine months. Wow. Okay. Um, and that's part of what their reproduction is, is so great. Yeah, I see. Um, so that's fascinating, you know, man. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And that, that plays into, you know, a number of different things that we, we don't think of in, in whitetail. I mean, that, that's partially why the management is just different because, mm. you know, we, we hunt whitetail in fall for a very specific reason. We hunt them around, around the reproductive season, mm. um, for, you know, being able to trick bucks and everything, but they're, there's a whole, again, a whole big discussion about this, but you, the, the reason you hunt in, in fall is partially, um, because if you hunted them in spring when there was fawns, that would be bad for the population. Yeah. So you, you know, there's a reason we, we hunt in fall. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but yeah, the, with, with axis, they got, they can have fawns year round. Wow. I, and I, I've got pictures one of my slides for various presentations was I had trail camera pictures of like maybe a couple week old fawns. I think the youngest one may have been like, may have only been a couple days old when I got it on camera, mm -hmm. but there's one in February, there's one in, in uh, July and there's mm -hmm. one in September. <laughs> That's cool. Of, of just, you know, very small fawns that at most were maybe a couple weeks old. Wow. So they're just going at it, man. Yeah. So wow. they're the fawns year round. Yeah. And that, do you remember in that area was the, um, was the, uh, nutrients really good in that area for the does? For the most part. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, and there, there are times when drought just sucks everything out, but I, I see. But that um, area where you saw them kind of breeding year round, it's just, just a lot of nutrients. Yeah. The does are healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. We did not ever see even in like check station or, or harvested animals. I never saw a doe that was bad condition. Mm -hmm. Like everything, you know, in, in general, um, mammals use fat reserves in, so you, you, they put on fat reserves first around, um, kind of around, well, they put on fat reserves first in bone marrow. Then you put on reserves around the organs, primarily around the kidneys, and then um, once that's full, you put it on around um, the rump. Mm. Now, so you won't see it physically no. or they, they could. No, I, but, but then reversely, when they have to use fat reserves, you go from, they, they work in that opposite order. They use the, the fat over the rump, then they go to the organ fat, then they go to, to bone marrow fat. Gotcha. Typically, if an animal is using the fat in bone marrow, it's, it's not long for the world. I see. It's it's in trouble. Wow. But almost every doe that I saw had significant fat over the rump. Oh, that's awesome. So in in really nice condition, you know, and that's, and so that, that's great know. for that's great for axis. But when you think about the larger scale of of axis versus whitetail down there, that that's not great because that just means that the axis are doing really well. Yeah. When the whitetail are are kind of struggling just getting by yeah yeah just yeah. getting by yeah. you know from from various things of yeah the drought sucks the nutrients out and everything and 
you know, we're given climatic changes. We're, we're in a drought, we're in drought almost every other year, maybe mm-hmm. in Texas, mm-hmm. if not every year. Are they resistant? I don't know how many more points you want to give to Axis deer being more res- resilient than whitetails, but are they more resistant to drought as far as water intake as well? I think they are. Jesus. So the, the, the worst drought in recorded history of Texas mm-hmm. was in 2011 to 2013, multi, you know, multi-year drought. 2011 was the worst part of it, and it was horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, there were literally reports for fawn recruitment or fawn survival for whitetail that was zero, that no fawns survived mm. that, that year. Every fawn died. Mm. Now, that's a problem down the street, you know, down the line, because you're missing an entire age class of, of individuals. Mm. And, you know, but, but the field station where I worked where I did a large portion of my field research was they, they looked around, they found, I think it was like 40 some dead whitetail. Hmm. Um, not a single dead axis wow. during the drought. They, they just survived that, you know, one of this worst recorded droughts in history and none of them died. Wow. You know, whether that's from, they are are resist you know resistant to the drought and everything and you know yeah there's there's some things in in India where you know it is tropical and everything but they do kind of go through this period mm-hmm. these these drought periods but then in in you know for that drought could it have been like I said earlier that basically the the whitetail used up all their resources. Mm-hmm. You know, from because there wasn't a lot of resources to begin with from from, you know, the drought prevented a lot of vegetation from growing and maybe all that was good for them had already been used up. And the axis just started eating everything else that the whitetail can't. And they can get their uh, their hydration from that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in fact, actually, a lot of what a lot of water that deer get is actually from both species, deer in general. Are, is from vegetation. I see. So it's, you don't necessarily need yeah, water they, all the yeah, time. Yeah, a lot of their their water is from is from vegetation. Wow. So, you know that basically, like in that drought, it it was pretty clear that the axis were a lot more resilient mm-hmm. to to the conditions than than whitetail were. Wow. Wow. Crazy, man. That's a that's a lot of information that I didn't know about the resiliency of axis especially versus whitetail. That's crazy. That's why in my, I mean, from what I'm seeing is of the I, probably 10 reasons you've mentioned so far, the reason why they're just so prolific. Yeah. You know, and I don't say hard to kill, but just just really resilient in Hawaii. Yeah. You know? You know, they, they just have all these different things of, you know, you go down the list of, what makes an invasive what makes a species successful as an invasive yeah you know things like high reproductive rate resilient resilience to change mm-hmm. um ability to adapt to new environments uh released from predators so they're they're released from their historic predators all these different characteristics that you know allow a species to be an invasive axes have them yeah. Like they are kind of the 
and, and like we put in in uh, another paper that basically they're a, a almost stereotypical example of a species that that's a good invader. Wow. And, okay. and, you know, they're not just in Texas and Hawaii. They're in Australia. They're in um, Croatia in Europe. Yeah. There's been several attempts to introduce them to Europe, but only uh, Croatia was successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but so they're doing well in Australia yeah. and Croatia right yeah. now. Yep. Yeah. Croatia, they're limited to islands. So it's kind of the same situation as, as Hawaii, you know, that they're probably limited in space mm-hmm. that can control their population. But in Australia, they're, they're all, you know, the whole Eastern half of the country is, 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 is got access. Mm-hmm. Um, Anywhere else? Not, no. Oh, South America. Um, Ar- Argentina. In, Argentina, right? Brazil, Uruguay. Wow. Okay. Um, they recently expanded into Brazil. Uh, but, but Argentina is, is got quite the population. Um, now there was a, there was another paper published out of some, from some people in Argentina who, who looked at, um, climatic conditions in both India and climatic conditions in their, their introduced ranges Mm -hmm. and did looked for areas that kind of match those on a global scale. So really what they were looking for is where do, you know, compared to areas where, where axes have been, been successful, where is there similar climatic conditions that if they would be introduced, they could do really well. So besides the ones where, that I just mentioned where there are axes already, mm-hmm. there was three other major spots listed. The southeastern coast of the U.S. from... Uh, Virginia down through like Alabama mm-hmm. to, uh, so that was one. Then, uh, in the Amazon in Northern Brazil, because where they are in Brazil is, is way at the Southern tip. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sub Sahara Africa. Now why that's really important is, you know, yeah, to the Southeast coast of the U S that'd be more of like a, a, Interrupting human, you know, human kind of thing, mm. you know, yeah, impacting whitetail to some extent, but sub-Sahara Africa and Amazon, those are biodiversity hotspots on the planet where we really don't want invasive species introduced mm-hmm. because you get an invasive species introduced there, they can have a lot of impact, you know, on, on native habitat and wildlife. So... You know, basically at that point, I the easiest way to think of it is just do not let access get to those areas. I see. Yeah. But in the worst case that one gets there, mm-hmm. they're gonna they'll probably do fine. Yeah. You yeah. know, so so really, you know, it's it's almost the same. I mean, obvious. You know, the solution's pretty simple: is just don't let them get there. Right. But worst case, they do. We got a problem. Yeah. So yeah. interesting. Um, Wow, a lot, a lot of good info. Um, we're at one um, hour and 42 minutes right now. Do you mind if we take a quick five minutes? Sure. Okay, so we'll just press pause here. All right, we're back. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I want to chat with you about is your current research. Yeah. And, um, you know, you and I talked over the phone, and um, you, you told me a little bit about it. Could you 
and I know that you're just getting started, but is there anything you could tell us about what you're doing? And, and yeah, what? so so up here now at, at Michigan State University, um, we're working on. I, I'm a postdoctoral research associate. Basically, means I I have my doctorate, but I'm 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 not a professor. I'm still just early career professional. Is kind of, you know, it's a it's another step to to help you learn how to you know lead your own research and stuff mm-hmm. but but what we're doing is we're looking at can we ultimately develop a method to deliver some kind of, of anti-tick medication to whitetail and and there's a couple of reasons why this is really important of you know this this has some pretty big implications to to vector-borne diseases or tick-borne diseases in general um, so the biggest one of those is Lyme disease. You know, Lyme disease is, is very prevalent across the eastern half of the country, mostly the northeast. But, you know, the what what role deer play in the system is really ticks can't become infected from feeding on a deer. But really what deer play in the system is they just proliferate tick populations. Mm-hmm. They they allow the adult ticks to take a blood meal and, and lay a bunch of eggs, um, so they just proliferate the pop, the tick population. But really, what what the the implications of this are is if you can develop this method and use it to reduce tick populations, could you reduce tick borne diseases like Lyme disease? Um, and so, like our we're just working on kind of developing the method, the ultimate medication, whatever gets gets put in the the delivery unit is is down the road because that involves USDA, FDA, various federal agency approvals. Mm-hmm. Because basically, you'd have to come up with a drug that you could put in deer at a time where it would be effective for ticks, but then wouldn't be harmful to people if that deer would be harvest, harvested. I see. So, and it's, it's this kind of delicate balance, but what we're doing is, is kind of developing the delivery unit. It's mostly composed of alfalfa, mm-hmm. um, but basically it's, it's an alf, you know, alfalfa-based delivery unit has some other components, but it's, it's adapting a, a method that one of my, my mentors did uh, up north in northern Michigan to deal with um, bovine tuberculosis in deer, um, and that was on an agricultural landscape. Uh, so they were just they were working on TB. Here we're working on can we can, you know, can we give a, a tick medication? So think of it kind of as like what you'd give your dog mm. for for ticks. That's kind of what we're trying to do for deer. Mm. Um, so it's. You know the the goal is in these urban and suburban settings of of East Lansing, of um, Meridian Township, which is next door to East Lansing. Can you uh, put out this this delivery unit that would would alt at one point contain a future drug that would would help with uh, killing ticks? And what we're doing right now is actually. The, the delivery unit just has a, a placebo in it. It's, it's, it's a biomarker that will uh, cause them, first of all, it'll cause them their, their muzzle to be stained pink. 
hmm. their their organs stay in pink. Uh, it doesn't absorb into the, the muscle, so it's actually it's safe to feed to animals that will be consumed. But the other thing it does is it leaves a um, it bought a UV fluorescent band in the whisker. Hmm. So off deer that are harvested, we can pull the whiskers out and then look at them under UV light. And if they've eaten one of the uh, delivery units with the biomarker in it, we can tell that. Hmm. So what that enables us to do is to say in the future when there would potentially be a drug in there, first of all, does this method, does this delivery method work? And then what kind of portion of the population are we getting you know would be we be theoretically medicating mm. um so for the tb project up in the agricultural country it was 70 percent mm. in a lot of situations if you can medicate 70 percent of your your host population and a lot of different disease systems that'd be enough to mark to wipe it out wow so um or at least significantly decrease its prevalence so, you know, if we could do that down here, obviously, in suburban urban, we're competing with people's landscaping, mm-hmm. you know, but, but kind of the other part of this is you look at a lot of methods, first of all, getting a vaccine into wildlife or, or any kind of medication into wildlife is really difficult at a population scale. The, the most successful and kind of the only really prominent one was the rabies vaccine effort that was done for raccoons. And that was done at the federal level. There was, you know, they were dropping baits from airplanes. They were spreading baits in alleyways and, and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but to do this on a, you know, large scale level is, is relatively unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and actually this, this project is, is partially funded, is, is funded largely through um, CDC funds. So, and it's, uh, you know, we, we've got, you know, big implications of can, can you reduce these, these tick-borne diseases? And that's not just Lyme disease. That includes, um, you know, anaplasmosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, um, the other, other diseases mm-hmm. that do, you know, may not be life-threatening, but are, are still significant. Sure. In in scheme of things that that you know, if if we can relatively introduce something that that we can get into deer, it's great. But mm. kind of the thing is, is that the methods that have been used to get medication deer before, they're they're usually with things like lacing corn with some kind of of um, liquid medication. Mm-hmm. Now with the advance of cwd chronic wasting you can't do that anymore that's illegal in a lot of states to just lay out piles of corn because what it does is it congregates deer into a single area which helps spread cwd Mm. and and other diseases so you know just this big pile of corn being laid out you can't do that anymore in over half the states of the country i see so our method is is kind of to develop this this delivery unit that would be spread out that isn't going to congregate deer mm. in a in a very small area and and risk transmitting um, other Lyme disease. So yeah, it's a really you know we're just we're just getting started, but the and ultimately we won't have a a drug in them, mm-hmm. but this is still that that first step. 
I see. to say develop the method to to go and in, eventually introduce the drug. Gotcha. So more of a the first stage here is this the delivery. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Is is kind of making the the delivery unit and making sure that it works and we can get we can get a placebo into them first mm-hmm. and then can we get the drug into them later? I see. Would you be the one working on the vaccine as well? Or? Probably not. That'll probably go to the next the next person on the pro- on the project. But um, because that, like I said, that involves a lot of federal regulation, yeah. a lot of federal approval. Mm-hmm. Because you know we we can't you you can't have something be introduced to deer that is going to be a risk when they're harvested Mm. you know so if it's if it's something that you know you kind of have to look at a a couple different possibilities of okay well that that drug is metabolized out and withdrawals from that animal before hunting season and like we're okay that's Mm -hmm. fine or in worst case would be you know if it's consumed the drug's still in the in the animal Mm -hmm. but it's not harmful to people yeah so and you got you you've got to work with that and that involves like I said a lot of fe- federal approval. Yeah, just don't get uh, like PETA involved in this because they yeah. probably put a vaccine to kill hunters. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> that was a bad joke. But. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, that's that's amazing. And you said you just got started with that research, right? Yeah, yeah so just started in in June and working with. Uh, some professors at, at Michigan State and Department of Fisheries and Wildlife, Dr. Gene Sow and Dr. Rick Campa. Cool. So good stuff, man. I, I wish you the best of luck on yeah. that. that. That's some that's some amazing stuff that you're doing. Um, it's a big undertaking too. Yeah. And like you said, it's never been done before, right? Yeah. At for the most part, it's, it's a tough thing to do. Yeah. At, at population scale, so. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Because, I mean, you could, who knows? I mean, somebody could develop something for uh, CWD or any, any yeah. of these other. you know, it's, it's what, you know, yeah, you get something effective, but then we've got to figure out how to actually get it. Get it to, to them. To the wildlife. Right, right. You know, that's, yeah. a, that's a tough thing to do when you're dealing with, you know, on very large landscapes. Of, yeah. You got to make sure that we can actually, you know, you can have whatever effective drug you, you want. But if you can't get it into the into the animals, it's not effective. So. Yeah, yeah. No, this is, it's a big undertaking. Uh, yeah, just put Lee Cantor on your list, the moose biologist in Maine, because he's looking for something for winter tick up there. Yeah. Yeah, um, and he's a good guy. Um, so another thing I want to chat with you about, too, like we chatted off air here for a second, is um, your um, your history as and your your the the the, your family and that kind of thing of um, your hunting background and kind of how that brought you to uh, the wildlife biology space and, and, and becoming a doctor now and kind of how all that took place. And, and, um, and I, uh, from reading your, um, your paper, you, you gave your, your family a lot of thanks in that. So it seems like you're pretty close to your family too yeah. then. Yeah. yeah. So I, and yeah, and in, in terms of kind of how I, came into this of you know my for my family I and mean, mostly it's pretty much only my dad who and some uncles who hunted but like go back into grandpas you know at least they they didn't hunt in while well, I was alive you know it was mo but you know 
did in you know early 1920s or or something but mm. um you know for subsistence almost mm. but but really what it was is i was exposed to you know to to wildlife you know i i grew up in 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 grafton wisconsin which is kind of like a suburb of a suburb of milwaukee so you know not not exactly rural mm-hmm. but enough mm-hmm. you know you went a little bit away and you were you know the farm fields and everything but really that what it what it is is i think you know that that exposure and that you know initial interest in wildlife then drove me into wanting to study wildlife and then you know got to uw stevens point got to western kentucky university texas tech here at michigan state of you know the where i think it it really has helped me grow is that being exposed to to different states, different cultures of of the different states, and learning from from you know different people with with different modes of of teaching and and stuff. So and it's really just the the hunting ultimately brought me into a situation where I was learning from you know learning and experiencing different things. Mm. Yeah. Uh, um. I told like we were again talking off air. I was t- telling you that becoming a hunter uh, and becoming a late onset hunter too, in you know last seven years or so, has kind of changed my life in in, a, in positive ways. Um, you know, changed the the people that I surround myself with, uh, the quality of those people, um, the uh, the caliber of those relationships too. Um, are I feel are there's a lot more depth there, yeah. um, and and I I have to equate it. I couldn't equate it to anything else but hunting and being out in the wild. Um, do you do you feel the same way? Yeah, and there's some of you know there there's a lot of good a lot of good conversations that happen in a duck blind or you know or something. But but again, you know, like you kind of said, of of caliber of people of you know being exposed to and. And yeah, at the at the university level, you know, you may not always have the time to go hunt, go hunting. But you know, everyone that I've I've worked with are, you know, yeah, they they've hunted and everything. But it's partially, again, it's partially the same situation as like I was describing. A lot of a lot of wildlife biologists probably came into this through hunting or fishing or something. Yeah. That being said, I mean, some of the best students I've ever seen grew up in inner city you know chicago for example mm-hmm. example i mean they're you know i think what some of that is is they've never they haven't been exposed to it but now that they're being exposed to it they're they're seeing how interesting it is and and they really go hardcore into it mm-hmm. um so you know there there's a side of this of you know like you said of of may not have been exposed to this as a as one young but now seeing it and and kind of changing perspective. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like it has has been life changing for any of your students? Ah, uh, some, some, yeah. You know, most most of what I've done in the past of history, so it's uh, been been research. Mm-hmm. So I and I'm I haven't hugely interacted at the student level. I, I and I have taught some some, but but yeah, it's uh, you know you you kind of see see that of saying you know that you know. I almost think that students who have been exposed to it their entire lives are 
kind of take some of it for granted, you know, kind of take some of the majesty of, of wildlife for granted, mm. you know, versus you got students who lived in concrete jungles their, their entire lives before coming into it, and they're almost awestruck. Mm. So, so I think that comes in, into some of it. Uh, they just, they, you know, they, they all of a sudden see this, this majesty of it. And they're like, oh, wow, this is really fascinating. Mm, yeah. If you had to um, talk to somebody or if you had to, like, explain to somebody who didn't hunt um, or, you know, was against hunting, is there, is there a way that you could put it to them to where they would understand, not necessarily agree that, hey, an animal needs to be killed, but anything that you could say to them to make them understand how, how important hunting is? Yeah, and, you know, basically... You know the way the way I kind of think of it is, yeah, we're we may be sacrificing or, or hunting the 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 few individuals, but we we do this for the betterment of the entire population. So, if know, somebody somebody said not not to interrupt you, but if somebody said, uh, I don't agree with that, like why would you? How do you? How are you telling me that so, you're? So first, you know, look at a couple things. Well, you know, on on the negative side of 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 potentially hunting, you go back to historical patterns, you go back to the market hunting age of the early 1900s, late 1800s, where we were shooting animals left and right for, for market purposes or for things like shooting the buffalo to to kind of, you know, for the Indians and stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that was very negative. But then our attitudes changed um, kind of around the time, you know, although Leopold wrote um, Game Management and A Sand County Almanac, kind of those those first very important texts of, you know, to say that, first of all, we can't just kill every animal, but then also a, a dedicated management is is not going to to eliminate the population. We do this management for, or harvest or whatever you want to, call uh to you know control to prevent overpopulation because overpopulation is is just as bad as wiping them out Mm. you know overpopulation just leads to to disease it leads to starvation you know it it leads to number of things now if you know the 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 term of you know you get into the kind of pedophilic and, and stuff where where just trophy hunting is in my opinion not what we should be doing doing you know we 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 shouldn't just be out there for trophy hunting we need to be out there you know i i think of it especially as a biologist of of you know hunting is a management tool it's not just you know yeah there's there's sides of it for for food you know kind of the worst situation of just solely for trophy but it's it's a management tool Mm -hmm. to to be used for for controlling wildlife and you know, if if we're if we're worried about overpopulation and stuff, what else is there to use? Mm-hmm. You know, you can't. You know, the proposals that have been about sterilization and, and stuff. Again, it's the same situation as getting a vaccine into wildlife. You can't do that at the level that's enough. Mm-hmm. You know, so we we have this great tool that as long as it's used correctly and ethically and morally it you know is is by far the most effective thing we have 
Yeah. And you have a workforce of people who uh, enjoy that activity. Yeah. And, and, and in my, you know, my experience working in research, I have never had a hunter who I have asked to collect something, you know, collect a, a tissue sample or something for research. I've never had a hunter say flat out no to me. Mm-hmm. They're always very interested in the research that, you know, we explain why we do it, why, why it'll help and everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that I've always, my experience has always been very positive yeah. to, to, you know, that, that they are interested in what we're doing and why and, you know, what can they do to help. Yeah, definitely. That's the whole reason why I'm doing this, yeah. you know, and it's because you care um, about wildlife and you care about conservation of wildlife and you don't want to see, um, I, I don't, I want to see a lot of animals out there, but I don't want to see overpopulation either. And I want to see landscapes that are healthy, yeah. animals that are healthy. And I feel like you're doing a, an amazing job uh, in your field, just like the other biologists I've talked to. Um, everybody's, uh, I've said this before, I feel like you, you, you guys uh, and gals are, are heroes, kind of unsung heroes, in that um, there's people who don't know a lot about hunting and or wildlife and don't see the good that, that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you in particular with this, this delivery device for, for, the, for a vaccine, that's, like, that's just amazing work. And yeah, I, I, yeah, and it's an, it's an aspect of kind of the the one health concept of you know the wild wildlife, livestock, landscape, and human health are all interconnected. Mm-hmm. You know, so so we we kind of have to bring together people from from various aspects. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I mean the the project I'm doing here is largely funded by the CDC. Yeah. The CDC doesn't have a huge amount of stuff to do with deer. You mm-hmm. know, some some diseases that can be transmitted but are worried but it's not exactly you know you wouldn't necessarily think of the cdc as the first thing that comes up with funding a wildlife project yeah no that was very surprised by that when we talked before um and i you know i'm happy to see that our funding is going somewhere positive that's that's great um do you Anything? I know that you're got your hands full with this project, but is there anything on the horizon after this, or that you're looking no, at? No, and it's it's mostly getting getting through the next three years or so, and then <laughs> when the you know two years from now, I start looking for for the next job. Yeah. But and that's the thing. That's part of the thing about academia and university life, and especially you know going through the different degrees and the different steps of. You know, once I was 18, uh, four years in, in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, two years in Bowling Green, Bowling Green, Kentucky, six years in Lubbock, Texas, then moved back home for a little bit. Then, you know, just starting three months here it is a very transient life. Yeah. You know, it, and and to some people that is a very negative thing. But but I my view on it is is to embrace it kind of the like I said before of. I've experienced different cultures, different learned from different people, made friends across the country. You know, that's that to me is very positive. Yeah. Versus versus looking at it very negative to say, yeah, you are very transient and you never are you're not at least, you know, for the early part of your career, you're not stable mm-hmm. per se. But like I said, I mean I choose to look at it more as as a positive to say of, you know, 
made friends all over the country from all over the country and mm-hmm. and learned you know from different people and experienced different cultures yeah that's one uh thing in unison that i've seen with a lot of the uh wildlife biologists is that there is a background there of working with a lot of different states usually a lot of different species and so there's this seasoning that you have that you bring along to whatever project and i'm sure that that's very helpful in your work too yeah yeah and you know like I said I and yeah I work on with whitetail now but a lot of my you know my deer experience was was with axis before and yeah there's some differences but it's you know in general your deer experience can be applied to another species yeah so and it yeah it's it's very you know yeah you get exposed to different things you learn different things and everything and then you take that and apply it to your next job and and so far down the line that's awesome that's awesome well um, man, I appreciate your time today. I know you're really busy, and so I'm stoked to sit here with you and to to be at Michigan State for the first time. And uh, it's been, I think, a really great conversation. Is there any way that are you approachable by like if somebody wants to know more about Axis Deer or want, wanted to approach you? Can they can they call you here at the university? Yeah, ba- probably the best way is is email. Uh-huh. Um, so my my university email is is B as in boy. U C H H O five zero at msu.edu. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, anybody out there who wants to know more about Axis Deer or your current research and uh, the tick vaccine and delivery devices and just anything wildlife, it sounds like you're pretty approachable. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you, you've been great. And uh, yeah, uh, I thank you again for your time today. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. yeah. And hopefully we get to to chat again soon about, uh, you know, something in hunting and wildlife. Yeah, sounds good. Okay. Oh.